The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat here. Welcome. Welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church. And it is so great to be able to meet together for a few of us here and a whole bunch of people online uh, to be able to meet together for the purpose of honoring our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a song that we used to sing years and years ago that said, right now is the right time to praise the Lord. And that's true always. That's true every moment. And today we are here in order to bring honor to Christ. And uh, yeah, I want to say welcome to all of you. Glad you can be part of that together with all of us. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we just sang that every heartbeat was meant for your praise. And we recognize together that you have created us for a purpose. You've allowed us to know the name of Jesus Christ, your son, who has saved us from sin, redeemed us for the purpose of honoring his name. And I pray that today as we continue in the book of Romans and learn from your word, I pray that you would continue to transform us, that we might burn for you more brightly. And I pray that this worship service would be completely in honor of you. Just guide our hearts, guide our thoughts, guide the words of Pastor Terry as he preaches from your word. And I pray that this would be in honor of you, all of it. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to just now hear the scripture for this morning being read by Michelle Schmidt. morning I'm reading from Romans 2 verses 12 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Thank you, Michelle. As in line of with what we just heard, uh, we're going to be talking a lot today about the heart. Remembering that our God looks at our heart. He sees past the good deeds that we do. He sees past the songs that we sing. He sees past the words that we say. And he looks at what our heart is. He's not concerned with our image, the image that we build and project for ourselves. He's concerned about how inclined towards Christ our heart is. And my friends, we can't manufacture that. We can't use mind over matter just to achieve that. It is God that transforms us. God transforms us so that our heart is more and more in line with Jesus, so that we are setting our hearts on things above, as Scripture says. And so the songs that we're going to be singing this morning are really about surrendering our heart to God, that he might do the changes that he wills to do, within us so that we might honor him more because nothing is better than him. Amen. Thank you, Jamie, so much. Um, great to be able to enter our time of the message uh, with that song of focusing on our hearts and uh, the reality of the intimacy with God that we are allowed <clears throat> and uh, this morning, as we begin, I want to uh, think about Psalm 62. <clears throat> There's a passage in Psalm 62, verse 3, where uh, we are compared to a leaning wall or a tottering fence. <clears throat> Picture is given of humanity, of us humans, how fragile we are, how insecure we are, how weak we can be. And one little push would topple us, you would get this picture. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be uh, talking about our security as believers in Jesus Christ, the assurance that we have that we belong to God, that we're forgiven of our sin. And it's interesting because the psalmist, even before he answers the question, he, he, kinda, he answers the question even before he asks it. He says in verse 2, just before the tottering fence, he says, God alone is my salvation and I shall not be shaken. And um, our security comes from the grace of God, and yet we as humans have all kinds of ways of trying to impress God, trying to make our status before God one that, that is somewhat dependent on us. And that is contrary to the gospel that Paul is preaching to the Roman church, which is the book of the Bible that we're looking at in these weeks. And... Um, and so this morning, as we think about this idea of our security before God, our assurance, let us take a moment just to pray before we look at this theme. Lord, our God, we thank you for uh, the scriptures that we're going to open up now in Romans chapter 2. And maybe there's someone listening today that has a deep need for an assurance that is rock-solid solid 
that, can, that comes from you, that comes not from our own performance in the Christian life, but from the promise of God and the power of your gospel of Jesus Christ to save and to forgive and to give eternal life. And so today, would you unveil the things that we are falsely leaning upon, those tottering fences, those leaning walls, and would you enable us to trust in you and not be shaken? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last year, the leadership of our church uh, read this book called uh, Every Good Endeavor by Timothy Keller. And at one point in the book, he defines story. He says this. He says that story begins when something knocks life off balance. That's when story begins. And the plot of story progresses as the force to struggle with restoring that balance goes on. And then story ends when the struggle is resolved, either in uh, the failure to resolve things or the success in putting it back to the way it was meant to be. So that's story. And if you think about any movie, any fairy tale, any book or novel, that's often the way that indeed stories unfold and so all stories have a problem, a conflict that knocks life off balance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the best story of all. And indeed, it is not a, a fable. It is a true story built on fact and history. And God intended life to be a certain way. God described it in Genesis 1 and 2. And then something knocked it off balance. We read about that in Genesis 3. And then everything about putting it back on course is Genesis 4 to the very end of the Bible <laughs> as God puts it on course. And indeed, that's rather overly simplistic sounding, but it is actually the truth of the matter. Let's take a step further. Let's take the definition of story and let's say that every philosophy, every worldview is also built on these three stages. In fact, Every worldview is really answering three big primary questions. And the questions are, what is human life supposed to be like? What has knocked it off balance? And what can be done to make it right again? And I'm not suggesting that, it, that all of the philosophers and, and uh, agents of new movements uh, went into their movement thinking, oh, these are the three questions I've got to answer. But in the end, that's what they did. They answered the questions. In a book uh, by a guy named Leslie Stevenson called Seven Theories of Human Nature, he goes through and talks about seven theories of human nature. He uh, describes six of them, and then Christianity is the last one that he puts forward and uh, all these prominent thinkers that had a certain way of answering these three questions. Plato saw our main problem as being in the physical body, as uh, not the mind and the spirit, but the physical body. Marx, Karl Marx attributed problems to unjust economical systems in life. Uh, Sigmund Freud believed it was inner conflicts between our desire and conscience. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre thought it was not realizing that we are actually completely free. B.F. Skinner, the behavioral uh, guy, was realizing, thinking that it was completely, our, our society is determined and we, we need to set free of that somehow. 
And the, the evolutionist Conrad Lorenz blamed our innate aggression upon our evolutionary past. And so all six of these guys and their philosophies are really answering the three questions, whether they set about to do so or not. The Christian worldview is actually quite simple and quite different than all the others. The Christian worldview is like this. God said the whole world is good. Remember every time he made something, every day he said, and it is good. And it is really good. And then it is not good for man to be alone and so on. The world was made good. The second question answered is that the whole world is fallen, Genesis 3 and onward. And then the third question is answered by saying that the whole world is going to be redeemed. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of Jesus Christ. The whole world is going to be redeemed from its fallenness. It will be recreated in, the, in, the, in Jesus Christ. It will be restored. The image of God in humanity will be, but also all of creation is groaning and waiting for all the sons of God to be revealed that way. <clears throat> Leslie Stevenson, the same author, about Christianity writes this. He says, if God has made man for fellowship with himself and if man has turned away and broken this relationship, then only God can forgive and restore the relationship. He comes to a right conclusion about the gospel. And so, whereas folks like Plato, Marx, and Freud locate the problem, question two, the problem is in something in the world you know, whether it's uh, the greedy capitalists, Karl Marx would say, that's our problem. Or Sigmund Freud would say, all those moralists and religious folk that impose these ideas on us. No. And the Bible comes along, Christ comes along and says, no. The, the problem is actually within us as fallen creatures. Sin has entered the world and the answer and the solution is found in the perfect man, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, and the entire story narrative that is meant to restore what has been broken. Now, you might ask, how does this relate to our study of Romans? Well, Paul, from the very beginning, has, after introducing the gospel in the first 17 verses, starts in chapter 1, verse 18, to build a case and the case is being built against humans. He's saying all of us are without excuse. We stand guilty before a holy God. And there's got to be a solution. And in chapter 3, he's going to come to that solution. He's going to say, God's going to provide the solution. Don't you try to fix it yourself. You're not a self-improvement project. And so... Paul is saying, he starts in chapter 1 by talking about the gross sins, the more obvious sins of the flesh. Goes into chapter 2 and he talks about the more refined sins, the religiosity, the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness. Paul is going to end by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 21, right? That's where he's going toward. But before he can get there to present God's solution, the answer to question number three, he has to clear away all that rubble of religiosity, of self-righteousness, of people who are actually in the, in the Jewish 
tradition or in the church of Jesus Christ thinking, I really don't need as much grace as some of these other folks. And that's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 2. That's why last week I called my sermon the great leveler of all people. That's what the gospel does. And today the message is called the many faces of false security. The many faces of false security. So Paul is writing the church at Rome, and in that writing he is addressing both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians But the Jewish Christians are more the ones being addressed in chapter 2 because he is having to address this sense of entitlement that they had. He's having to address this portfolio they brought to the church, this pedigree, this posturing before God, this privilege of being far above all the other Gentile believers that were coming out of paganism and polytheistic belief. And so Paul is saying, hey, whoa, 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 just a second. Don't you be leaning against that fence. Don't you be putting your weight on that wall because only one wall will survive. So there's three types of false security that I would like to unravel with you from chapter 2 and beginning in verse 12. Paul addresses the first one, which is a security that arises from ignorance of the law. Verse 12, it says this, Those who have sinned without the law, who is he talking about? The Gentile believers. Those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And then he goes on, he says, those who have sinned under the law, that's the Jewish believers, well, they'll be judged by the law. And so, clearly, he's talking about two groups that made up the church in Rome, Gentiles and Jews. But regardless of whether you grew up hearing about what God's law required or not, you're going to be judged by the same standard. And so God's leveling off all people here. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they show that they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. For they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness, accusing or excusing They're conflicting thoughts on them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's an incredible thing that God has given every human being this little moral compass that is within the heart of every human being, a moral compass. It points to the true north, this thing called conscience what is right and what is wrong. And the amazing thing about conscience is that it supersedes all of the cultural rules and boundaries, all of the tribal norms and codes, all of the ethnic traditions. It supersedes all of that because every human being created in the image of God has a conscience built in. Oh, how important it is to pay attention to that conscience. And for all those Gentile believers that have come into the church assuming that somehow they're not quite as accountable to God because they didn't grow up knowing the Bible. They didn't grow up having the law, memorizing it every Saturday and so on. No, no, he says, you've got a conscience and the law was written on your hearts. A guilty conscience is something that all of us can identify with. (laughs) It's... um, It starts as young as two years old. Amazing, eh? 
A guilty conscience can start as young as two years old. Parents need to teach a child right from wrong, but they also must understand how important it is that this little one not violate their conscience, not ignore that prompting of better fess up to mom and dad kind of attitude, not violate it, but it remains rather soft and supple, not hard, because a conscience can get hard. 1 Timothy 1, 9, 19 we're exhorted, to, we're exhorted to hang on to faith and hang on to a good conscience. I was thinking about how many times in my growing up years my conscience was being tested. I remember when I was younger, every summer I would take swimming lessons. I might have told you this story. And, and every summer for three or four years in a row I failed swimming lessons. Now all you had to do to pass the first beginner swimming lessons was not drown. I didn't drown, but what I would do is I didn't stay on top of the water. I'd dive down, hold my breath, and get to wherever the instructor was telling me to go. And I think it was the third or fourth year in, I was just I was ashamed. And so I actually convinced my brother on the way home from swimming lessons to tell my parents that they ran out of badges, but that I'd passed. <laughs> oh, my conscience bothered me. Not enough to fess up right away, but... And, and, and even earlier than that, I think I might have been seven or eight years old, six or seven or eight years old, and I remember writing on the dining room chairs of my parents' home, and, and I, I noticed that the pencil would poke through the paper, and it made a popping sound. I thought, oh, that was kind of cool. And I was popping through the paper, but not realizing it was popping through the seat as well. And my mom cornered my brother and I, and she said, who did that? I mean, we must have been against the wall for like an hour. It probably was only five minutes, but, but we, neither of us were confessing. And finally, my brother fessed up. And I thought, <laughs> I know I had done it. I think he just wanted to get on with life. But my conscience bothered me. I shared the story a few years ago about when I first arrived in, back from Bolivia in Canada and I had my dad's truck with, on Ontario plates on it. And, and I went downtown and I parked ahead of a fire hydrant down near Broadway just to pay a ticket that I had. And, and I came out from paying the ticket and they're writing, she was, a woman was writing me up for another ticket. And I started going, I went to her and I, and I, I found these words were coming out of my mouth. I was saying... I'm from Ontario, you can see the plates, and please, and she let me off. I got in Dad's truck, and I drove around the block, and my conscience was just hammering me. I went around the block and found the woman doing another ticket, and I just went up to her and said, I lied to you, I live here, it's my Dad's truck, and <sighs> she let me off anyway, but uh, wow, the conscience. I hope you attend to your conscience. It's a very important thing to pay attention to because the Bible says you can defile your conscience. You can actually ignore the dashboard lights and that, that chisel that the Holy Spirit takes and hammers out to make you more like Jesus, you can take that chisel and just dullen it so that when Holy Spirit comes along and starts trying to make you like Jesus, it's not working the same way. Why? Because you have allowed your conscience to get hard, dull, ineffective. <clears throat> and so attend to your conscience. 
So this first false security that Romans 2 is talking about is about those who believers who felt that they were not as responsible before God because they didn't grow, grow up in a Christian home that, or a Jewish home that knew the law. They didn't grow up knowing about God. They somehow have given themselves a pass. You know, they're not, they're not as trained in religion as, as others. They had no knowledge growing up. And perhaps some of you listening today have excused yourself. You've given yourself a pass thinking that because your parents didn't instruct you in God's ways, because you came into faith later in life, that you're not as responsible. And God says, no, that's not true. I've given you light in your conscience, but I've also given you light right now. Are you walking in the light that God has given you? That's what God would say today. The next kind of false security is starting in verse 17. Paul addresses a security that arises from reliance, over-reliance on the law. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you notice that Paul is switching the focus now from the Gentile believers to the Jewish believers who do know the law and he is now talking to the ones who rely very heavily on the law. Notice he says, he says, you call yourself a Jew. Interesting language. The, the word Jew, remember, is derived from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> and the word Judah means praised. Now, it, it was meant to be that you are for the praise of God, but a lot of the Jewish believers throughout the ages had come to see that they were praised. They were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. And if you know the history of the Jewish people, I want you to know Paul is writing at a time when already for 100 years they had been subjugated to the Roman domination, oppressed by Rome. Prior to that, it was oppression under Greece. And if you go back in their history, it was under Egypt, it was under Assyria, it was under Babylon. The people of the Jewish people have had oppression throughout the ages. And the amazing thing about that is that as in, in spite of the oppression, they knew that they were, from the time of Abraham, God's chosen people. And they carried in their bosom this sense of being favored and God's chosen people. And a spiritual pride had evolved by the time of the New Testament church. Even for those who were Jewish believers and recognized Jesus as Messiah, they still came into the church with that pedigree, that pride. They took their pedigree with them to church and looked down at the Gentile believers. And part of that pride was related to the fact that through Moses, they got the law of God. They weren't just the recipients of the law and the guardians of the law and the teachers of the law. They, the, they, they, were, they were the ones that, that knew it the best, obeyed it the most. And there was pride. We can do the same with the Bible. In fact, in, in, in history, some of the rabbis taught the Jewish people that to learn facts about the law and to memorize it was sufficient to pleasing God. Do you see the danger here? 
and they prided themselves. And so read now, with that in mind, read verse 19 with me. He says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children having in the, in, in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you see how Paul is confronting their pride? If you go back to verse 17, you'll notice that his whole argument starts with him saying to them, you're calling yourself the Jewish people, the praised ones, the ones that are for the praise of God. And yet, instead of God receiving more praise, it says in verse 24 that God's name is being blasphemed because of them. Well, why would that be? Why would God's name be blasphemed because of the Jewish people? Well, it's because of their self-righteousness. It's because they, they look down their noses at everybody else. I hope the Spirit of God is taking application to your heart today. When you think about it, the Bible says that we, the church, we as Christians are God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. Paul's saying, just like he said to the Jews, he's saying to the church, Peter's saying, you need to realize you're just like everybody else. You need just as much grace. And if we are the people of God that have received mercy and been forgiven of sin by sheer grace, how can we boast? How can we be proud How is it possible that the impression of Christ that we give unbelievers could be so repulsive that that if we are being Christ-like in our attitude, humility, respect, and kindness, and love, how could people get an impression of Christ that is repulsive, just as the Jews were giving an impression of God that was blaspheming God? How is it possible Well, it's only possible because we can come across proud, entitled, insensitive, judgmental, condescending, disrespectful. I don't know if you've seen it from brothers and sisters in Christ. I've witnessed it from brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to say, sorry, sir, that that brand of Christianity, I, I I don't subscribe to that. That God that he's representing, I don't subscribe to that. Have you ever felt you needed to do that? It's kind of like what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Truth is good, but if the tone doesn't come along with it, is it truth anymore? The tone of God. I can remember standing toe-to-toe with a man in a former church. Church was going through conflict. And the, the man stood toe-to-toe with me, and he said, this has been my church. These were my grandparents' church. This, is, this has been our church for generations. Pastors come and go. And I just said, this isn't your church or my church. This is the Lord's church. Spiritual pride can take all kinds of shapes. But God has no grandchildren. 
And every one of us come at the same place to God. And it doesn't matter our pedigree, our parents, our, our background, our past. God is not impressed with your knowledge of the Bible, your church attendance, your service. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Let's move on to our next uh, point, which has to do with the security that arises from outward obedience to the law. Now, Paul is getting even closer to the heart of the matter here in verses 25 to 29. The defining sign for the Jewish nation above their favored position before God, their chosen status, is the, the, the right of circumcision, this sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. If we go back to the Old Testament, we read in Genesis chapter 17 the command that God gave Abraham to take every male eight, at the eight, age eight days old and circumcise them, the surgical removal of the foreskin on the penis. It was intended to be a mark and a reminder of the removal of sin. The removal of sin. It was like, it was like parents were bringing their child and, and, and the surgery was being done and in so doing it, it was saying, it was saying, this child belongs to us, and we belong to God who has removed our sin and has saved us. It's exactly like the song we just sang, let it fall away. That's what, that's what circumcision, one, uh, uh, circumcision was, a, a, a flesh falling away, saying sin falling away. Us asking God, circumcise my heart, let it fall away. Anything that doesn't belong to you, oh God. And so, in the Scripture, though, obviously God never intended the outward rite of it, the outward performance of it, the external surgery to be the big, big idea. It was the internal idea. That's why Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. You see, God's intent was always that the, the outward sign be a, an inward reality, just as baptism is for us or the Lord's Supper, any ordinance. But like so many external customs, rituals, or practices, they lose their meaning over time if we're not careful. And that happened to circumcision. The outward act became more important than the inward reality. In fact, by the time of Paul, it had become almost superstitious, some of the rabbis taught that no circumcised Jewish man would ever possibly see hell just by virtue of the, of the physical circumcision. The Midrash, which was an ancient commentary in Old Testament Hebrew Scripture, the Midrash actually said this, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell because Abraham sits before the gates of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. I mean, just sad. Outward religious externalism, conformity, and it never really washes with God. And so in verse 25, Paul says, For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
In other words, there's no greater insult that you could give a Jewish man than to say, you uncircumcised so-and-so. Nothing could be worse. Paul is saying it here. He's saying, your circumcision doesn't matter if you have not given your heart and rendered it to God. And you can see what he's doing. Paul is dividing. Paul is taking this thing that's dividing the church in Rome, Jewish, Gentile, believer. He's just saying, stop it. He's demolishing the dividing wall. And then what he writes next in verse 28 is of the utmost importance. Verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not, notice the play on words, Judah, praise. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, there is a tendency in all religions to take the focus off of the inward and the spiritual significance of something and to place it on the external and the outward and the, and the conformity to a thing. And once we have done that, then what we do is we find security in that. We feel that we're better than somebody else because of that. We feel that God is pleased with that. We, see, we think that we're impressing God somehow. It could be, could be your baptism. It could be your church membership. You're attending church regularly, uh, having a daily Bible reading, praying at mealtime. I mean, anything you could turn into something that is an outward thing that's losing its inward reality. Do you fast? All through my life, I've, my adult life, I have had periods when I have fasted and I have not fasted. And the reason I stopped fasting is because, I don't mean like on a weekly basis or something like that, the reason I stopped doing that routine because I start turning it into a formality. It starts to lose its meaning. Any outward thing can do that. And so we start getting assurance from it, but it's false assurance my standing with God does not depend on my outward performance of all these religious duties. And we deceive ourselves. In every generation, we have to think about how we do this. We create ways of assuring ourselves, giving ourselves security. Things like we do, but they, they really are, they don't hold water. They leak. They're leaning walls. They're tottering fences. I want to just maybe do something interesting with you. If we were to take a snapshot of the church throughout the ages, here's kind of what the first century church that Paul's writing would look like. He'd, he'd be saying that their, their security is, uh, the false security is, is being, on a Jew, being a Jewish Christian. That was better. They were depending on that. And then, of course, knowing the law and observing it, relying on it, trying to obey it, that was important. And then depending on, you, you, if you really outwardly conformed, if you were circumcised, if you observed the Sabbath, and if you were observing certain fasting and dietary rules, that was really good. The first century church had dragged some of that into the church from their Judaism. That's why it's interesting that in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, you know, Sabbath and circumcision and some of those things, they didn't say that the Gentiles had to obey that. Interesting what they did say. It's for another time. Now, if you just fast forward with me and go to the German church in the 16th century, you know, the Martin Luther church. What, what was really important was being a good Catholic. What did that mean? Well, that meant that you maybe, you had to be pretty close to the priest. You had to know him. You had to know the Bible. But you had to know church tradition. 
And then there was all these things that you had to do that you could do. The church afforded you the possibility of doing that could show that you were also going to merit favor with God and have some security in the afterlife. The church claimed to have a whole storehouse of what were called indulgences. And an indulgence was kind of a, a bank account, a, a place where a storehouse could, you could go in and, and you, could, you could pay for these. If your personal account of goodness was low because you were depleting it by sins, withdrawals, you could draw from the account of the saints of the past. All you had to do was view a holy relic, something that was from the past. Could have been a bone from a, a former martyr or something like that. And if you viewed it, it, it was paying forward something. And, and there was a whole, was one of Rome, the, the very place where Paul's writing, one of Rome's great storehouses included the bones of 40 popes from the past. A piece of Moses' burning bush. I always figured, how did that come about if it was the burning bush? <laughs> um, the coins that betrayed Jesus that Judas threw. The there's all kinds of these, the, the, the hair of the Virgin Mary, the, a piece of the swaddling clothes. I mean, impossible likely to even know that they had them, but, but here were the poor people feeling that if they paid enough money, it was paying for less time in purgatory for a loved one or for themselves and their own souls. Ridiculous, yes, we can say it. But what is it that we've done in this generation? How have we turned it from a heart matter into an external conformity matter. Well, we might say that being a good church member is something important that God really is impressed with. We might say that knowing the Bible better, the church's expectations, and I think we all have expectations. We might not have indulgences and holy relics like the medieval church, but do we have expectations? Do we judge people on the externals? That's the thing living a moral life, having a good reputation, being baptized, serving the Lord. And what is it that you're depending on in all these different ways? The point is, is that only the righteousness of Jesus is enough to be satisfying of God. There's nothing more you can add. The Bible says that even the best things that we do, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. I can remember one time when Pat and I were involved in prison ministry during our seminary years in, at Acadia Divinity College. We went to Spring Hill Penitentiary on a regular basis every six weeks. And for a weekend we had, we couldn't sleep inside, but we went there all day long on Saturday, Sunday, and then we went back home. And I remember my first encounter with an inmate that we were paired up one-on-one. -on -one. <clears throat> I was in about my second year of seminary, I think, and um, I wanted desperately to share the gospel with this young man. And I, I finally said to him, what color do you think your soul is? And he said, oh, my soul is black. They don't even know half the crimes that I committed. I'm only in here for some of them. And then I said, well, what color do you think my soul is? And he said, ah, preacher boy, white. Well, I said, well, no, I'm not happy with a lot of the things of, of my past. I say it's gray. 
And then I said to him, imagine that Jesus Christ himself came through that chapel door right now. What color is his soul? Oh, well, he, he even knew that he and I don't compare to Jesus. And I said, you're right. He said, I said, if Jesus Christ were to stand next to you and I, you would not see a difference between you and I. Paul is trying to convey to the, Jew, the church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, there's no difference, folks. We're all without excuse. We're all guilty. And we all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a little portion of, uh, from a book by John Eldridge called Waking the Dead. And I'll just read this portion and then I want to conclude with prayer. Uh, and have the worship team come. Here's what he says. And I want you to enter into this, okay? You need to live this. You need to imagine this, okay? Here we go. He's talking about the Holy Spirit as the counselor, John 14. He says, how would you feel if your spouse or a close friend of you, yours said to you one day, I think you need some counseling, and so I've arranged for it. You start tomorrow. It'll probably take years. I've got five bucks that says you'd get more than a little bit defensive, he says. The combination of our pride, I don't need any therapy, and the fact that it is becoming a profession has kept most of us from realizing that, in fact, we all do need counseling. All of us. And that's why Jesus called the Holy Spirit the counselor. And he said to us that it, it, he made it clear, in fact, we apparently need quite a lot of counsel. The Spirit isn't just stopping in to give us a tune-up or an annual checkup. He has come to stay. <laughs> He'll be with you forever, it says. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God, we, we acknowledge that our hearts always are in need of tune-ups, that we don't need just a little adjustment, that our hearts are idol-making factories, that our hearts are darkened by sin's understanding, that we have within us a bosom of pride, of, of pedigree, of thinking that somehow we're better than the next person. We have some way of, of posturing before you that somehow excuses our sin, even though our conscience might dictate a, a, an accusation. Lord, we, we have ways of propping up a righteousness before you, and it's all a straw house, Lord. It's all going to burn. It's a leaning wall. It's a tottering fence. We ask you, God, would you by your Holy Spirit counsel us in our hearts? Counsel us in our hearts to see what we have done to be proud before you and take it down, deconstruct it, demolish it, Lord. Clear away the rubble so that when we get into the message of the gospel in chapter 3 of Romans, we'll start to see more of the beauty of it and of our incredible need of it. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. I thank you for freedom. It is freeing to us when we are reminded that it is you who have saved us.
It is you who has set us free. It is because of you that we have life. And you have saved us and freed us so that we can praise you. And that is our joy. And so we thank you for all of those things. Lord, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, this wonderful counselor in us, who is doing real work so that, again, we can live more freely, not having to depend on our pride, not having to depend on our image, not having to depend on our reputation or our work or our deeds, not having to have the stress and the anxiety of, of relying on these things because you have done the work and you are continuing to free us so that we can live in a way that honors you and a way that gives us the most joy in walking with you. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. I thank you for what you've taught us. I pray that you'd bless each one of us here in this room, at home in living rooms. I pray that you would bless your church, your spiritual kingdom, for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.